So I'm uh, Nicholas Bornois of Capital Link, and I am delighted to welcome you back to the second day of our um, uh, International Shipping Forum, which we're hosting together in partnership with the uh, city. Uh, we are really privileged to start uh, our second day with a particularly uh, interesting and important panel. Uh, I, we have the opportunity to have uh, a one-on-one -on -one discussion with uh, Peter Georgiopoulos, as we all know him, Peter G. Peter is a person who really does not need introduction. Uh, so I will only mention that, uh, as we all know, Peter is someone who has left his own imprint on the shipping industry. He is a person who has been involved in the business for so long, for a long time. Uh, he has made his career ups and downs. Uh, Peter is a person who combines, uh, he's a fighter, he's resourceful, he's resilient, he's really indefatigable. And among the many things that characterize Peter, and it's a long list, uh, I can mention the fact that Peter is known not only for his financial acumen and for his ability to run uh, shipping companies, but he is known for his ability to spot the right deals and to execute large, complicated uh, transactions. Uh, many times uh, during his long career, he has bought large fleets. Uh, he has executed uh, significant uh, secondhand uh, market transactions. Uh, so uh, I think uh, this is one element where Peter really stands uh, uh, so well uh, in this industry, among many others. So let me start by welcoming, by welcoming Peter. And uh, we discussed that it would be best not to look past, not to look in the past, but to look forward. Of course, looking uh, in the past, you have your, the lessons that you've learned, the experience you gained. But again, another of the things that characterize Peter is his ability to look forward. So our discussion will be to use his expertise and insight, uh, talk about the industry today, and then talk about his uh, future plans. So Peter, welcome. Thank you Thank for you. being with us. Thank you. So you have a long involvement with shipping and capital markets. Uh, can you share with us how you have seen the industry develop and evolve during all these years? What is different today compared to when you started? Well, I mean, it's sort of funny it, how, you know, I'd say if you were to graph it, you, it'd go something like this. And what I mean, when we first took General Maritime Public in 2001, which actually is 20 years ago, um, there weren't a lot, there wasn't a lot of capital markets. There weren't a lot of public companies yet, you know, old companies like OSG, which has been around forever, uh, TK but you didn't have that sort of rush of public companies and, or you know, public debt issuance that you had a number of years ago. And then you know, we took General Maritime public, then eventually Genco came public a few years later. Uh, and there was a whole rash of you know, public companies um, and you know, public debt issuance, big bond issues. Uh, and now you've seen it come back again where you don't see a lot of activity in the capital markets which i think is sort of sad for the shipping business i think it'd be you know uh it obviously would be great if, if there was an active capital market for it right now we, we just don't see it so one of the things that uh, has been on everybody's mind as we have seen also with the panels we have in the forum 
is fleet maintenance and fleet renewal. These are challenges that ship owners face every day, and especially today, uh, given the uncertainty uh, because of regulatory uh, requirements, lack of clarity on fuels and engines and so on. So what do you think uh, the impact uh, of all these uncertainties will have on uh, fleet supply and the overall market? Look, I think, again, this is just my personal opinion. I think it's going to limit the amount of new buildings because I wouldn't build a new ship. I never liked building, doing new buildings historically. I like buying secondhand. But to order a ship today that I'm planning on, you know, owning and operating for 20 plus years, I don't know what is going to happen in 20 years. I'm not even sure what's going to happen in 10 years. So to order a ship today, and then I find out that in nine years, well, if it takes two years to deliver it, right, then seven years. So in seven years after delivery, I'm told that that fuel is not allowed or you need to make major capital changes to the ship. You know, I'm not sure what is going to be there in 2030, 2040, 2050, 2050 is a little far out, but in the next 10 to 20 years that I'd be worried about ordering a new ship today. Again, just not knowing what kind of uh, fuel regulations there will be. I mean, I think it's a huge question mark. I think uh, it is a huge question mark. And I think uh, exactly the, the reluctance of owners to uh, place new buildings hopefully will have a positive impact on the market, supply demand balance and so on. Exactly. Now let's move to technology. Technology has uh, has been playing a much bigger role uh, across the board. So are there any areas where do you see technology having the biggest impact on, on shipping? You know, it, right now it's at the margins. You know, it's, it's not as if there's been some, you know, there, I guess you could say, uh, you know, the fuel efficient ships of a number of years ago was one technology jump. Uh, now we're going to do dual fuel. But I think in general, it's been at the margins. There hasn't been one big technological change. And I'm not sure that there will be a big one. You know, I think, unfortunately, these are big, uh, you know, big assets that need to move the most efficient way to move them is with an internal combustion engine uh you know so i think in that term you're going to uh you know that's going to continue what we need to do is figure out how to do it more efficiently how to do it hopefully cheaper how to do it cleaner um but again it, right now i see it all at the margins there hasn't been one big big technological jump that that uh you know that that'll take the industry forward peter in your long career you've managed uh, fleets uh, across every pretty much segment of the industry tankers product tankers dry bulk now chemical carriers uh, the human element remains always a core factor in shipping whether you talk about crews, uh, officers, online personnel, and so on. So what do you see? Uh, right now, we have a humanitarian crisis uh, regarding crewing. We also have an issue regarding the quality uh, and the availability of uh, seafarers and how do you train and retain them. What do you see as solutions to the human resource uh, challenge in, in shipping? Look, it's a big issue. You know, if you go back historically, mariners came from you know, Western Europe 
and America. You know, America had a, you know, going back 100, 200 years, America was a big maritime power. England obviously was a big maritime power. That shifted to countries like Norway and Greece. They became big maritime powers. And now you see it moving east, obviously. Um, you know, Russia, Ukraine were, were, you know, used to supply bigger fleets. But what you're finding is these Western European and American uh, countries don't, you know, young, young people don't want to go to sea anymore. You know, you go to Greece where, I mean, it was a huge part of the, you know, Greek culture, uh, a huge number of young Greek men at the time and now men and women would go to sea uh, and then come back and work in the offices eventually. And you're not seeing that, you know, young people don't want to uh, go to sea. It's shifted east. Um, and I think we just need to, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, you know, it's a different, uh, we've watched movies, you know, if you think about it from US, England, Greece, Norway, Russia, Ukraine, and then now to Asia. And uh, I think it's, a, I think there's a huge pool of talent there. Um, I think it's just a matter of the right training, uh, understanding cultural, cultural differences, um, obviously language issues are important. So I think that, you know, as we look at the history, uh, that is where the future is in the East. And we just need to be aware of that. So let's move to, to a new topic, uh, industry fragmentation. Uh, shipping is a notoriously fragmented industry. Uh, during your long career in shipping, the companies that you have run have been industry consolidators. So I wanted to ask your opinion. There are a number of people who think that size matters, creating economies of scale and efficiency. There are other owners who believe that, you know, small can be beautiful and they can compete uh, on an equal footing with their peers. So what do you think is the right mix here? Does the industry need more consolidation? Uh, will it change over time? I mean, right now we have so many regulatory changes so many pressures from all over the place. And I think they're leading to more consolidation inevitably. But is that your opinion? So there's sort of three thoughts there that I have there. So the first one is that there is sort of a point, you know, if you have two or three ships, it's hard to compete because you need a certain infrastructure. And especially with all the regulations, you need a certain amount of, uh, you know, a, of a team. To, to get things working. So there is a point where the economies of scale get you there, you know, I don't know if it's 20 ships or, or what the number is, but there's, a, there's, there's a, a, a point that you get there. And this is on the operating side um, and you can compete against anyone. I think when you're talking capital markets, it's another issue. And I think, I'm not even sure if there are any companies in the world that are big enough to satisfy the capital markets today in terms of size um you know you look at the size of, of 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 you know companies in the public markets and they're massive and then you look at the shipping companies and you know i think it'd be very hard to have a shipping company big enough to compete in the capital markets you know to, to get the kind of attention that you might want the third point is that it sort of ties into what you said the human element the other interesting thing about chipping, I think, is that there's a little bit of a cult of personality. Like people don't talk about frontline, talk about Fredrickson. You know, it's, it's, you know, he is frontline. 
Frontline is him, as an example. You know, most people can't pronounce my last name, that's fine, so I became Peter G. But there's a little bit of a cult of personality in shipping where many times people don't even know the company's name, they refer to the owner, especially, you know, you think in Greece, a lot of people don't know, you know, don't mention the company's name, it's, you know, such and such an owner or such and such, you know, an owner. Um, and I think that ties into the human element also. And I think, you know, that has its pluses and minuses, you know, uh, it makes the interesting, it makes the industry fun and interesting. Um, and you have these sort of big personalities, some of these big personalities in the business. Um, but then I think that limits it in terms of consolidation because you get two giants and each one thinks he's, he's, you know, wants to be the survivor. Peter, or you she, mentioned about capital market, sorry. He or she wants to be the survivor. Of course. So you mentioned about capital markets and you opened the window to our next question. You've run five, five uh, publicly listed companies. Shipping is part of the capital markets, but you know, still remains a small part of the overall capital market. What do shipping companies need to do to attract more investor attention? And also I found it very interesting. You've been a person who has been so much involved with the public market. Your latest acquisition, you mentioned you would rather keep it private. So do you think, uh, what is the trade-off between private and public when it comes to shipping companies? Look, I think um, the, tra the trade-off is if you are public, there's an access to capital, theoretically access to capital. If, you're, if you've got a small market cap and the market's terrible, that access to capital could be very expensive because your shares are trading at a discount to NAV. I think for what I have, you know, for this point in my life, I'm not that interested in uh, being part of a public company. I'd prefer to just keep this company private. Um, that's not a, a reflection on the capital markets. I don't think, I don't think I could take a company public today, not me, anyone. I think you know, that, that window is mostly shut for the time being. That doesn't mean to say that there will be a time when that window opens again. Um, it's not there now. So Peter, during your career, as I mentioned before, you're known for the art of the deal, for making uh, a number of large uh, acquisitions. You've done it again. So tell us a little bit uh, about the latest uh, venture that you have announced, the acquisition of the United Arab Chemicals uh, carrier. So, yeah, this is uh, this is exciting for me because um, you know when I left uh, Gen uh, Generate and, and uh, Genco a few years ago, you know I wasn't rushing to get back in the shipping business and. Uh, but this opportunity came along. It's a great company, uh, great management team, uh, great shareholders. I mean, really some of the most impressive shareholders uh, that you can imagine were owners of the company. And they had put it up for sale. It was a very complicated transaction. I think that scared off a number of people. I mean, it took us a year to get it done. I mean, so you can imagine the level of, uh, of complexity. And so the plan right now is just to keep it private I, you know, I'm, I'm a believer in the, uh, the chemical and the products carrier market. I think that uh, once we come out of COVID, we'll see a little improvement in the market. I think we'll see, uh, uh, you know, more movement as you're seeing refineries are being built closer to, um, to locations where the oil is being produced, which I think will lead to further uh, 
movement of products. So Peter, that company will run out of uh, Dubai, Athens. What are your plans for that company? No, the plans are right now, the headquarters are in Dubai and uh, our plan is ultimately uh, over time to move the uh, operations to Athens. So you've, I mean, you've run companies out of uh, New York, uh, Athens. Uh, so I think Leo is in, in Athens, am I right? Yeah, Leo Vrandisis, who uh, uh, was the chief financial officer uh, at Generate, we've been together for over 20 years, is gonna run the business out of Athens. So- And he's put, together, he's put together a really great team over there. Wonderful. So we've also read uh, about uh, another venture of yours in the renewable space. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, that one's a little far off. I was surprised that one got into the press. Um, I made an investment in a methanol plant in the US Gulf. And uh, I'd originally been uh, working on a project in the Pacific Northwest, but the environmentalists are very tough up there. So that project never, never got anywhere, but it's, uh, I got involved with a company that has the licenses and the land to build the largest uh, methanol plant in the world at this point. Um, so right now we're in sort of uh, very early stages. The issue with methanol, it is a fuel of the future. We believe uh, a lot of people are interested in it. Um, this is a huge project. So it's, take, it's taking time to sort of put the financing together um, and, and, you know, and get the project moving. So, Peter, you've made headlines again uh, with uh, your latest uh, fleet acquisition with the renewable project. But I think there's a third uh, uh, project that uh, you've been working on that, uh, based on our discussion, is really uh, a pioneering, groundbreaking uh, uh, product. Please tell us about it. So this one, again, this is a little, uh, a little premature, but I'm happy to discuss it in, 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 you know, in, in general terms, not getting into too many specifics. You know, a few years ago, when um, it started with the changeover to a low sulfur fuel, and then with the talk on, uh, on carbon, what we, what we realized is that there's no way to measure either sulfur emissions or carbon emissions real time. When a company talks about their carbon footprint, for instance, it's a formula. And so far, everything that the EU has looked at and everyone has looked at, it's backwards looking, not forwards looking. Again, you started the uh, discussion about being forward looking. Uh, so we've developed a device that can real time uh, measure the carbon emissions and report it instantly and the sulfur emissions. So the sulfur work, that's pretty quick. It can, it can tell you when the switchover happens. So if you're coming in within the 200 miles, uh, you know, into the eco zone and you switch to low sulfur fuel, the, obviously the emissions change and this device can tell you, you know, that, 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 that it's a low sulfur emissions. In terms of the carbon, it also um, can, can report the carbon immediately as opposed to you know, it's not AI sort of coming up with a formula. I mean, we've had teams, you know, from Ivy League universities and universities in the UK, PhDs working on this, trying to figure out how to, how to do this. And we think uh, we've got the right team together. Uh, right now, we're, we've got eight units on ships. Our, our beta units, we had four on ships two, two summers ago. Um, 
And so we believe that this is, you know, not backwards looking, not some kind of formula. This is, you know, real emissions and real data, which we think is going to be very important for the industry. So Peter, if I understand it correctly, uh, right now, uh, regulatory compliance regarding environment is the topic of the day, the challenge that the industry is facing. And what you're coming up with uh, gives the ability for the first time to track real performance, real data, uh, and report them, both on the sulfur, uh, low sulfur and the carbon footprint. Correct. Uh, is there any other device uh, like that in the market right now? Are you the first one coming out with this? Nothing that we've seen. We've not seen anything like this. So exactly as we mentioned, give, this gives the ability to do real-time monitoring as right. opposed to using a formula uh, that is not real-time monitoring. Correct. It's backwards looking. You think about it, right? And right now, you mentioned you have uh, already uh, a track record on eight ships. Uh, of course, more to go. Uh, yeah, we'll have 20 units deployed by the end of March, hopefully. Um, you know, and at that point, I think it'll give us enough data to put, put out a white paper. So, Peter, uh, we have, as we know, uh, a forum we're going to do on decarbonization on April 14, and we coin it uh, moving from discussion. There's been plenty of discussion to delivery. We need delivery. So I think, uh, I hope we can have you again there to elaborate um, in a month and a half uh, more details on this groundbreaking uh, product. Yeah, hopefully. I think by then it'll be, uh, you know, we'll be in a, a better position to talk about it. So I would like to thank you. We are uh, past our time. I'd like to thank you very, very much for being with us today. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your contribution to the industry. And of course, uh, I'm really honored that uh, uh, you uh, started the second day of our forum together. Thank you very Amen. much. And thanks for having me. Of course. Good luck. Likewise. Thank you. Bye.